14. Central Park, and which participates in its drainage system. There are no cases. On the whole line of Fifth Avenue there are none. The exempt districts are clearly defined by the character of the soil, drainage, and sewerage, and by the topography, which either has natural or artificial drainage, but most of which is so dry that only surface water and house filth which does not exist in those palaces can affect the health of the residents. But in the tenement houses and on the made lands where running streams have been filled in and natural springs choked up by earth fillings, diphtheria finds an ideas in which to develop itself. The sanitary map coincides precisely with the topographic map made by General Ville, where he locates buried springs and water courses. There we find the plague spots of diphtheria and in the same places, on previous maps prepared by the Board of Health, we find other low types and stealthy diseases such as typhoid and eruptive fevers, and there we shall find them again when the summer and autumnal pestilences have yielded place to those which belong to the indoor poisoned air in the winter. The experience of other cities, notably London and Dublin, once plague spots and now as healthy as any spot on earth, proves that most of the causations of disease are within the control of the competent sanitary engineer, even in localities crowded beyond American knowledge and houses built upon soil saturated for centuries with the awful of successive and uncleanly generations. Wet earth, kept wet by the boiling up of imprisoned springs, is a focus of disease. Dry earth is one of the most perfect deodorizers, the best of oxidizers and absorbents, destroying the germs of disease with wonderful certainty. On those two facts rests the theory of public hygiene, dust and disease. The air we breathe is heavily loaded with minute particles of floating dust. Their presence being revealed only by intense local illumination. Professor Tyndall says, solar light, in passing through a dark room, reveals its track by illuminating the dust floating in the air. The Sunday says Daniel Culverwell, discovers atoms, though they be invisible by candlelight, and makes them dance naked in his beams. After giving the details and results of a series of experiments in which he attempted to extract the dust from the air of the Royal Institute by passing it through a tube containing fragments of glass wetted with concentrated sulfuric acid, and thence through a second tube containing fragments of marble wetted with a strong solution of caustic potash, which experiments were attended with perfect failure, the professor continues, I tried to intercept this floating matter in various ways, and on the day just mentioned, Prior to sending the air through the drying apparatus, I carefully permitted it to pass over the tip of a spirit lamp flame. The floating matter no longer appeared, having been burnt up by the flame. It was, therefore, of organic origin. I was by no means prepared for this result, for I had thought that the dust of our air was, in great part, inorganic and non-coma style. In a footnote he says, according to an analysis kindly furnished me by Dr. Percy. The dust collected from the walls of the British Museum contains fully 50% of inorganic matter. I have every confidence in the results of this distinguished chemist. They show that the floating dust of our room's island as it were, winnowed from the heavier matter. Again he says, the air of our London rooms is loaded with this organic dust, nor is the country air free from its presence. However ordinary daylight may permit it to disguise itself. A sufficiently powerful beam causes dust suspended in air to appear almost as a semi-solid. Nobody could, in the first instance, without repugnance, place the mouth at the illuminated focus of the electric beam and inhale the thickly massed dust revealed there. Nor is the repugnance abolished by the reflection that, although we do not see the floating particles, we are taking them into our lungs every hour and minute of our lives. The notion was expressed by Kircher and favored by Linnaeus. 
that epidemic diseases are due to germs which float in the atmosphere, enter the body, and produce disturbance by the development within the body of parasitic life. While it was struggling against great odds, this theory found an expounder and a defender in the president of this institution, at a time when most of his medical brethren considered it a wild dream. Sir Henry Holland contended that some form of the germ theory was probably true. Professor Tyndall proposes means by the application of which air loaded with noxious particles may be freed from them before entering the air passages. The following embodies his suggestions on this point, cottonwool respirator. I now empty my lungs as perfectly as possible, and placing a handful of cottonwool against my mouth and nostrils, inhale through it. There is no difficulty in thus filling the lungs with air. On expiring this air through a glass tube, its freedom from floating matter is at once manifest. From the very beginning of the act of expiration the beam is pierced by a black aperture. The first puff from the lungs abolishes the illuminated dust, and puts a patch of darkness in its place, and the darkness continues throughout the entire course of the expiration. When the tube is placed below the beam and moved to and fro, the same smoke-like appearance as that obtained with a flame is observed. In short, the cotton wool, when used in sufficient quantity, and with due care, completely intercepts the floating matter on its way to the lungs. The application of these experiments is obvious. If the physician wishes to hold back from the lungs of his patient, or from his own, the germs or virus by which contagious disease is propagated, he will employ a cottonwool respirator. If perfectly filtered, attendants may breathe the air unharmed. In all probability the protection of the lungs and mouth will be the protection of the entire system for it is exceedingly probable that the germs which lodge in the air passages, or find their way with the saliva into the stomach with its absorbent system, are those which sow in the body epidemic disease. If this be so, then disease can be warded off by carefully prepared filters of cotton wool. I should be most willing to test their efficacy in my own person, but apart from all doubtful applications, it is perfectly certain that various noxious trades in England may be rendered harmless by the use of such filters. I have had conclusive evidence of this from people engaged in such trades. A form of respirator devised by Mr. Garrick, a hotel proprietor in Glasgow, in which inhalation and exhalation occur through two different valves, the one permitting the air to enter through the cotton wool, and the other permitting the exit of the air direct into the atmosphere, is well adapted for this purpose, but other forms might readily be devised. Light and health, our dwellings ought freely to admit the sunlight. Diseases which have baffled the skill of physicians have been known to yield when the patients were removed from dark rooms to a light and cheerful apartments. Lavoisier placed light, as an agent of health, even before pure air. Plants which grow in the shade are slender and weak, and children brought up in dark rooms are pale, sallow, and rickety. It is a bad practice to avoid the sunlight through fear of spoiling the complexion, since the sun's rays are necessary to give to it the delicate tints of beauty and health. Air is necessary for the first inspiration and the last expiration of our lives, but the purity and healthfulness of the atmosphere depend upon the warming rays of the sun day while our bodies require light in order that their functions may be properly performed. We know that without solar light, there can be no proper vegetable growth, and it is equally necessary for the beauty and perfection of animal development. Our dwellings should therefore be well lighted and made as bright and cheerful as possible. Women who curtain the windows soften the light, and tint the room with some mellow shade, may do so in order to hide their own faulty complexions. The skin of persons confined in dungeons or in deep mines becomes pale or sickly yellow. The blood grows watery, the skin blotches, and dropsy often intervenes. 
On the other hand, invalids carried out from darkened chambers into the bright sunlight are stimulated. The skin browns, nutrition becomes more active, the blood improves, and they become convalescent. Light is especially necessary for the healthy growth of children. There is nothing more beautiful and exhilarating than the glorious sunlight. Let its luminous, warming, and physiological forces come freely into our dwellings, enter into the chemistry of life, animate the spirits, and pervade our homes and our hearts with its joy-inspiring and health-imparting influences. Chapter II. Food, Beverages, Alcoholic Liquors, Clothing. The human body is continually undergoing changes which commence with the earliest dawn of existence and end only with death. The old and worn-out materials are constantly being removed to make room for the new growth and development, as well as the elimination of worn-out and useless matter, continually require new supplies, which are to be derived from our food. To fulfill these demands it is necessary that the nutriment should be of the proper quality, and of sufficient variety to furnish all the constituents of the healthy body, in order that food may be of utility. Like other building materials, it must undergo preparation, the crude substance must be worked up into proper condition and shape for use, in other words, it must be digested, but this does not end the process of supply, each different substance must be taken by the different bands of workmen, after due preparation in the workshop, to its appropriate locality in the structure, and they're fitted into its proper place, this is assimilation, in reality it becomes a portion of the body and is advantageous in maintaining the symmetry and fullness of the part to which it is assigned, this constitutes the ultimate object of food, nutrition, eating is the process of receiving the food into the mouth, i.e. prehension, mastication and in saliva minutely dividing and mixing it with the saliva, deglutition conveying it to the stomach, plenty of time should be taken at meals to thoroughly masticate the food and mix it with the saliva, which, being one of the natural solvents, favors its farther solution by the juices of the stomach, the healthy action of the digestive powers is favored by tranquility of mind, agreeable associations, and pleasant conversation while eating, it is proverbial of the American people that they bolt their food whole, washing it down with various fluids, thus forcing the stomach to perform not only its own duties, but also those of the teeth and salivary glands, this manner of dispatching food, which should go through the natural process above described, is not without its baleful consequences, for the Americans are called a nation of dyspeptics, eating slowly, masticating the food thoroughly, and drinking but moderately during meals, will allow the juices of the stomach to fulfill their proper function, and healthy digestion and nutrition will result, if the food is swallowed nearly whole, not only will a longer time be required for its solution, but frequently it will ferment and begin to decay before nutritive transformation can be effected, even when the gastric juice isn't diluted with the fluids which the hurried eater imbibes during his meal. Regularity of meals cannot be too strongly insisted upon. The stomach, as well as other parts of the body, must have intervals of rest or its energies are soon exhausted, its functions impaired, and dyspepsia is the result. Nothing of the character of food should ever be taken except at regular meal times. Some persons are munching cakes, apples, nuts, candies, etc. at all hours and then wonder why they have weak stomachs, they take their meals regularly, and neither eat rapidly nor too much, and yet they are troubled with indigestion, the truth is they keep their stomachs almost constantly at work, and hence tired out, which is the occasion of the annoyance and distress they experience, eating too much, 
it should always be remembered that the nutrition of our bodies does not depend upon the amount eaten, but upon the amount that is digested. Eating too much is nearly as bad as swallowing the food whole. The stomach is unable to digest all of it, and it ferments and gives rise to unpleasant results. The unnatural distention of the stomach with food causes it to press upon the neighboring organs, interfering with the proper performance of their functions, and, if frequently repeated, gives rise to serious disease. People more frequently eat too much than too little, and to omit a meal when the stomach is slightly deranged is frequently the best medicine. It is an excellent plan to arise from the table before the desire for food is quite satisfied. Late suppers. It is generally conceded that late suppers are injurious, and should never be indulged in persons who dine late have little need of food after their dinner, unless they are kept up until a late hour. In such cases a moderate meal may be allowed, but it should be eaten two or three hours before retiring. Those who dine in the middle of the day should have supper but sufficiently early so that a proper length of time may elapse before going to bed, in order that active digestion may not be required during sleep. On the other hand, it is not advisable to go wholly without this meal, but the food eaten should be light, easily digestible, and moderate in quantity. Persons who indulge in hearty suppers at late hours, usually experience a poor night's rest, and wake the next morning and refreshed, with a headache and a deranged stomach. Occasionally more serious consequences follow, gastric disorders result, apoplexy is induced, or, perhaps, the individual never wakes, feeding infants, for at least six or seven months after birth, the most appropriate food for an infant is its mother's milk, which, when the parent is healthy, is rich in all the elements necessary for its growth and support, next to the mother's milk, that of a healthy nurse should be preferred, in the absence of both. Milk from a cow that has recently calved is the most natural substitute, in the proportion of one part water to two parts milk. Slightly sweetened, the milk used should be from but one cow. All sorts of paps, gruels, panadas, cordials, laxatives, etc. should be strictly prohibited, for their employment as food cannot be too severely censured. Vomiting, diarrhea, colic, green stools, griping, etc. are the inevitable results of their continued use. The child should be fed at regular intervals, of about two hours, and be limited to a proper amount each time, which, during the first month, is about two ounces. From 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. the child should be nursed but once. As the child grows older the interval should be lengthened, and the amount taken at a time gradually increased. The plan of gorging the infant's stomach with food every time it cries, cannot be too emphatically condemned. After the sixth or seventh month, in addition to milk, Bits of bread may be allowed, the quantity being slowly increased, thus permitting the diet to change gradually from fluid to solid food, so that, when the teeth are sufficiently developed for mastication, the child has become accustomed to various kinds of nourishment, overfeeding, and continually dosing the child with cordial, soothing syrups, etc. are the most fruitful sources of infant mortality, and should receive the condemnation of every mother in the land. Preparation of food. The production of pure blood requires that all the food selected should be rich in nutritious elements, and while cooked, to announce a standard by which all persons shall be guided in the selection and preparation of their food is impossible, especially is this the case in a country the inhabitants of which represent almost every nation on the face of the globe. Travelers are aware that there is as much diversity in the articles of food and methods of cookery, among the various nationalities, as in the erection of their dwellings, and in their mental characteristics. 
In America we have a conglomeration of all these peoples, and for a Native American to lay down rules of cookery for his German, French, English, Welsh, and Irish neighbors, or vice versa, is useless, for they will seldom read them, and, therefore, cannot profit by them. There are, however, certain conditions recognized by the hygienic writers of every nation. The adequate nutrition of the organic tissues demands a plentiful supply of pure blood, or the digestive apparatus will become impaired, the mental processes deranged, and the entire bony and muscular systems will lose their strength and elasticity, and be incapacitated for labor. Different kinds of food required, the different periods and circumstances of life require their appropriate food, and the welfare of mankind demands that it should supply both the inorganic and organic substances employed in the development of every tissue, the inorganic elements employed in our construction, of which phosphorus, sulfur, soda, iron, lime, and potash are the most important, are not considered as elements, but are found in the organic kingdom variously arranged and combined with organic materials in sufficient quantities for ordinary purposes, when, however, from any cause, a lack of any of these occurs, so that their relative normal proportions are deranged, the system suffers, and restoration to a healthy condition can only be accomplished by supplying the deficiency, this may be done by selecting the article of food richest in the element which is wanting, or by introducing it as a medicine. It must be remembered that those substances which enter into the construction of the human fabric, are not promiscuously employed by nature, but that each and every one is destined to fulfill a definite indication. Lime enters largely into the formation of bone, either as a phosphate or a carbonate, and is required in much greater quantities in early life, while the bone is undergoing development, than afterwards. In childhood the bones are composed largely of animal matter, being pliable and easily molded. For this reason the limbs of young children bend under the weight of their bodies, and in less care is taken they become bow-legged and distorted. Whenever there is a continued deficiency of the earthy constituents, disease of the bones ensues. Therefore, during childhood, and particularly during the period of dentition, or teething, the food should be nutritious and at the same time contain a due proportion of lime, which is preferable in the form of a phosphate, when it cannot be furnished by the food, it should be supplied artificially. Delayed, prolonged, and tedious dentition generally arises from a deficiency of lime. With the advance of age it accumulates, and the bone becomes hard, inelastic, and capable of supporting heavy weights. Farther on, as in old age, the animal matter of bone becomes diminished, and lime takes its place, so that the bones become brittle and are easily broken. Lime exists largely in hard water, and to a greater or less extent in milk and in nearly all foods except those of an acid character. Phosphorus exists in various combinations in different parts of the body, particularly in the brain and nervous system. Persons who perform a large amount of mental labor require more phosphorus than those engaged in other pursuits. It exists largely in the hulls of wheat, in fish, and in eggs. It should enter to a considerable extent into the diet of brain workers, and the bread consumed by them should be made of unbolted flour, sulfur, iron, soda and potash are all necessary in the various tissues of the body, and deficiency of any one of them, for any considerable length of time, results in disease, they are all supplied, variously arranged and combined, in both animal and vegetable food, in some articles they exist to a considerable extent, in others in much smaller quantities, sulfur exists in eggs and in the flesh of animals, and often in water, iron exists in the yolk of eggs, in flesh, 
and in several vegetables. Soda is supplied in nearly all food, and largely in common salt, which is a composition of sodium and hydrochloric acid, the latter entering into the gastric juice. Potash exists, in some form or other, in sufficient quantities for health, in both vegetable and animal food. Classes of food. All kinds of food substances may be divided into four classes, proteids, fats, amyloids, and minerals. Proteids are composed of the four elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, sometimes combined with sulfur and phosphorus. In this class are included the gluten of flour, the albumin, or white of eggs, and the serum of the blood, the fibrin of the blood, syntomin, the chief constituent of muscle and flesh, and casein, one of the chief constituents of cheese, and many other similar, but less frequent substances. Fats are composed of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen only, and contain more hydrogen than would be required to form water if united with the oxygen which they contain. All vegetable and animal oils and fatty matters are included in this class. Amyloids consist of substances which are also composed of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen only, but they contain just enough hydrogen to produce water when combined with their oxygen, or two parts of hydrogen to one of oxygen. This division includes sugar, starch, dextrin, and gum. The above three classes of foodstuffs are only obtained through the activity of living organisms, vegetable or animal, and have been, therefore, appropriately termed by Professor Huxley, vital foodstuffs. The mineral foodstuffs may, as we have seen, be procured from either the living or the non-living world. They include water and various earthy, metallic, and alkaline salts. Variety of food necessary. No substance can serve permanently for food except it contains a certain quantity of proteid matter in the shape of albumin, fibrin, casein, etc. And, on the other hand, any substance containing proteid matter in a shape in which it can be readily assimilated, may serve as a permanent vital foodstuff. Every substance, which is to serve as a permanent food, must contain a sufficient quantity, ready-made, of this most important and complex constituent of the body. In addition, it must also contain a sufficient quantity of the mineral ingredients which enter into the composition of the body. Its power of supporting life and maintaining the weight and composition of the body remains unaltered, whether it contains fats or amyloids or not. The secretion of urea, and, consequently, the loss of nitrogen, goes on continually, and the body, therefore, must necessarily waste unless the supply of proteid matter is constantly renewed. Since this is the only class of foods that contains nitrogen in any considerable quantity, there can be no absolute necessity for any other foodstuffs but those containing the proteid and mineral elements of the body. From what has been said, it will readily be seen that whether an animal be carnivorous or herbivorous, it begins to starve as soon as its vital foodstuffs consist only of amyloids, or fats, or both. It suffers from what has been termed nitrogen starvation, and if proteid matters are withheld entirely, it soon dies, in such a case, and still more in the case of an animal which is entirely deprived of vital food, the organism, as long as it continues to live, feeds upon itself, the waste products necessarily being formed at the expense of its own body, although proteid matter is the essential element of food, and under certain circumstances may be sufficient of itself to support the body, it is a very uneconomical food, the white of an egg, which may be taken as a type of the proteids, contains about 15% of nitrogen and 53% of carbon. Therefore, a man feeding upon this 
would take in about three and a half times as much carbon as nitrogen. It has been proved that a healthy, adult man, taking a fair amount of exercise and maintaining his weight and body temperature, eliminates about 14 times as much carbon as nitrogen. However, if he is to get his necessary quantity, about 4,000 grains of carbon, out of albumin, he must eat 7.547 grains of that substance, but this quantity of albumin contains nearly four times as much nitrogen as he requires. In other words, it takes about four pounds of lean meat, free from fat, to furnish 4.000 grains of carbon, the quantity required, whereas one pound yields the requisite quantity of nitrogen. Thus a man restricted exclusively to a proteid diet, must take an enormous quantity of it. This would involve a large amount of unnecessary physiological labor, to comminute, dissolve, and absorb the food, and to excrete the superfluous nitrogenous matter, and productive labor should be avoided as much in physiological as in political economy. The universal practice of subsisting on a mixed diet, in which proteids are mixed with fats or amyloids, is therefore justifiable. Fats contain about 80% of carbon, and amyloids about 40%. We have seen that there is sufficient nitrogen in a pound of meat free from fat, to supply a healthy adult man for 24 hours, but that it contains only one-fourth of the quantity of carbon required. About half a pound of fat, or one pound of sugar, will supply the quantity of carbon necessary. The fat, if properly subdivided, and the sugar, by reason of its solubility, pass with great ease into the circulation, the physiological labor, consequently, being reduced to a minimum, several common articles of diet contain in themselves all the necessary elements, thus, butcher's meat ordinarily contains from 30 to 50 percent, of fat, and bread contains the proteid, gluten, and the amyloids, starch and sugar, together with minute quantities of fat, however, on account of the proportion in which these proteid and other components of the body exist in these substances, neither of them, by itself is such a physiologically economical food, as it is when combined with the other in the proportion of 3 to 8, or 3 quarters of a pound of meat to 2 pounds of bread a day. It is evident that a variety of food is necessary for health. Animals fed exclusively upon one class, or upon a single article of diet, droop and die, and in the human family we know that the constant use of one kind of diet causes disgust, even when not very long continued. Consequently, we infer that the welfare of man demands that his food be of sufficient variety to supply his body with all of its component parts. If this is not done the appetite is deranged, and often craves the very article which is necessary to supply the deficiency. After the component parts of the organism have assimilated the nutritious elements of particular kinds of food for a certain length of time, they lose the power of effecting the necessary changes for proper nutrition, and a supply of other material is imperatively demanded. When the diet has been long restricted to proteids, consisting largely of salt meats, fresh vegetables and fruits containing the organic acids, become indispensable, otherwise, the scorbutic condition, or scurvy, is almost sure to be developed. Fresh vegetables and fruits should be eaten in considerable quantities at the proper seasons. Value of animal food. The principal animal food used in this country consists of pork, mutton, beef, and fish. Beef and mutton are rich in muscle-producing material. Although pork is extensively produced in some portions of this country, and enters largely into the diet of some classes, yet its use, except in winter, is not to be encouraged. The same amount of beef would give far greater returns in muscular power. In addition to the meats mentioned, 
Wild game furnishes palatable, nutritious, and easily digested food. Domestic fowls, when young, are excellent, and with the exception of geese and ducks, are easily digested. Wild birds are considered much healthier food than those which are domesticated. All of these contain more or less of the elements which enter into the composition of the four classes of foods. Vegetable foods. Wheat is rich in all the elements which compose the four classes, and, when the flour is unbolted, it is one of the best articles for supplying all the elements. Barley stands next to a wheat in nourishing qualities, but is not so palatable. Oats are rich in all the elements necessary for nutrition. Oatmeal is a favorite article of diet among the Scotch, and, judging from their hardy constitutions, their choice is well founded, in consequence of the large proportion of phosphorus which they contain. They are capable of furnishing a large amount of nourishment for the brain. Rye is nutritious, but it is not so rich in tissue-forming material. Indian corn is an article well known and extensively used throughout the United States, and is a truly valuable one, capable of being prepared in a great variety of ways for food. It contains more carbon than wheat, and less nitrogen and phosphorus, though enough of both to be extremely valuable. Rice is rather meager in nutriment, it contains but little phosphorus matter with less carbon than other cereals, and is best and most generally employed as a diet in tropical countries. Beans and peas are rich in nutritious matter, and furnish the manual laborer with a cheap and wholesome diet. The potato is the most valuable of all fresh vegetables grown in temperate climates. Its flavor is very agreeable, and it contains very important nutritive and medicinal qualities, and is eaten almost daily by nearly every family in North America, until very recently it with the addition of a little buttermilk or skim milk, constituted almost the sole diet of the Irish people. The average composition of the potato is stated by Dr. Smith to be as follows, water 75%, nitrogen 2.1, starch 18.8, sugar 3.2, fat 0.2, salts 0.7. The relative values of different potatoes may be ascertained very correctly by weighing them in the hand, for the heavier the tuber the more starch it contains. Turnip and cabbage are 92.5%, water, and, consequently, poor in nutrition, though they are very palatable. The solid portions of cabbage, however, are rich in albumin. It is evident that the quantity necessary to maintain the system in proper condition must be greatly modified by the habits of life, the condition of the organism, the age, the sex, and the climate, the daily loss of substance which must be replaced by material from without, as we have seen is very great. In addition to the loss of carbon and nitrogen, about four and a half pounds of W.